Welcome to Temple Talks, a new podcast from Temple Israel in Minneapolis, where Jewish wisdom meets our ever-changing world. Join us as we talk with our favorite partners and thought leaders from around town and around the world. We hope these talks will inspire you, challenge you, and give us all new ideas about Judaism, religious life, and social justice. Good to see you all back again. Uh, thank you for, uh, for those of you who, who listened to our first uh, incarnation of, uh, of, of discussion. We appreciate your returning. And we also appreciate uh, the various comments that we got from our, uh, what we like to call our fan base, but that may be a little ostentatious. Would you like to introduce who we are? Yes, I was getting there. I was getting there. So, uh, my guest, Professor Larry Rudnick, um, University of Minnesota, uh, lecturer, um, thinker, uh, professor, teacher. I'm Rabbi Sim Glazer, uh, uh, one of the rabbis at Temple Israel. Um, I'm not a Kabbalist by nature, but I play one on TV. And I've been studying it, so that uh, that brings many of the... Uh, of the, the topics that I have been thinking about and that uh, uh, Professor Rednick have been thinking about for some time. So Larry and I are going to have a discussion today on um, the uniqueness or lack thereof of, of humanity in the cosmos um, and, uh, and also as the, on the subject of awe and the importance of wonder. So um, we're going to start, um, in fact, by, by uh, reflecting on one of the uh, comments that somebody wrote in to us. We'll leave names out of it. It's not uh, essential. Uh, but one of our listeners wrote that he believes uh, that there is something absolutely unique about humanity, uh, that only humans can see the experience of other people that they have perhaps never met and likely will never meet in a place they've never been and likely never will visit. And know with all the ability that we can possess that we are what we are seeing is wrong that's happening to these folks and even feel compelled to sacrifice to try to improve these people's lives and the writer goes on to say that he cannot think of any biological explanation that would induce someone to care about the plight of someone with no tangible connection to them only humans have this capacity whether one believes it was breathed into us by God or written into the human psyche by some divinely inspired words. Um, and by the way, tonight, as we record this, tonight is Shavuot, the Jewish holiday, which does in fact talk about the covenant with God giving us those divine elements that, that are supposed to inspire us. Um, or if it's a form of a, of a human niche construction, uh, seems far less relevant than the fact that the capacity is there and that it is unique to the human species, which is uh, what our, our writer uh, was uh, posed for us. Right. So what do you I, think of that, Larry? I, 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 it's, it's interesting. It sounds compelling, but I think it's a dangerous line of reasoning. I think the idea that we can't think of a reason and therefore something must be true because we can't think of it. I mean, science over the centuries just is one thing falling after another that we couldn't possibly picture yesterday and all of a sudden we do today. And I was just listening to a, um, uh, a broadcast or a recording from Jane Goodall, who worked with the great apes. Mm -hmm. And she recounts um, following the chimpanzee troops mm -hmm. and finding them going to a waterfall, following them going to a waterfall, where they start going through various types of ritual motions, swaying and moving back mm -hmm. and forth. And she's wondering, what is it that's going on? And she has no framework for sort of figuring it out. But, but she's beginning to question, is there something that the chimps feel or see by experiencing this waterfall, which they typically don't like, but they go mm -hmm. into the waterfall and they go through these rituals. Mm -hmm. What's going on? So I don't know what human, what animals are capable of, and sort of I, I shy away from reasoning, saying I can't think of it, and therefore it must be this this way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know uh, that, that 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 certainly is a good argument. <laughs> um, you know, as I mentioned, uh, tonight uh, celebrates this holiday where the law uh, supposedly was was given to Moses and then handed to the Israelite people thousands of years ago, uh, ostensibly, right? 3,300 years ago at, at this mountain, right? And, and it's, an interesting, it's an interesting supposition that um, 
that we are we are brought into this covenant and are given a set of guidelines that are moral principles, right? Because one could make the argument that we don't have an inherent empathy mm -hmm. and that we are commanded to have that empathy. Um, the Torah mentions no less than 35 or 36 times, uh, 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 take care of the stranger in your mm -hmm. midst. Sure. You know, what is hateful to you, do not do to another. That's the entire Torah, right? Um, but there's, a, there's another tradition that suggests that the Torah is already in our DNA and that what is revealed at Sinai on that particular occasion is just a, um, is like, here it is. You forgot it as soon as you were born, mm -hmm. but it's really part of your character. We're just acknowledging that which is implicit in the human character. Right. And this idea that there is no time in Torah, that everything that can exist does exist right. at, at all times, and we may be experiencing a piece of it. This idea, though, about stuff inherent in our DNA certainly is a scientific concept as well. I mean, we call it instinct, hmm. for example. So how does a baby um, animal at birth know to suckle mm -hmm. it, its mother? How do we, um, as infants, immediately start recognizing faces, just even with little tiny sketches, or be afraid of spiders or things like mm -hmm. that? These are things that are hardwired into us. So the idea that there is some moral sense hardwired into our DNA mm -hmm. certainly would resonate scientifically. question still is, where did it come from? Did it, did it come because of some evolutionary pressures or was it something that came from God? Right. And uh, again, as a scientist, I don't know how to even test the idea hmm. about whether it came from God. So I don't consider it a scientific question. Mm -hmm. If you pose a scientific question, I can do an experiment to think about it. I don't know what to do with the statement that this comes from God. So there's really no other than having sort of making a faith statement on, right. on either of our part, right? Mm -hmm. um, that it that it's in in the human it's implicit in the human character. Uh, we we really we really don't know. Um, we can't or, or not to the point where we could actually uh, we could actually prove it. And it's not resolvable between us mm -hmm. because the questions that I'm asking as a scientist, I I can't put faith statements to that kind of test. Mm -hmm. of course it, and and it shouldn't they shouldn't be put to that test and and they can't be so I simply have to say to you uh, digs into hate right? right I mean it's I'm, I'm happy you believe it and if it um, mm -hmm. if it gives you strength and meaning and things like mm -hmm. that that's great but don't ask me scientifically to mm -hmm. either confirm or deny it I can mm -hmm. do neither yeah you know I am um, I've been thinking a lot about this because right now, as we speak, you know, the Middle East is blowing up again and it's in turmoil for the very for the very opposite reasoning that we were just discussing or that our questioner put forward to us. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is that you should treat your neighbor, you know, no differently than you yourself would want to be treated. And that's exactly what the world is sort of holding up Israel to that standard, mm -hmm. saying this nation was founded on Jewish values and principles. Right. And yet, look what you're doing, you know. And you know, I, my my natural gut response to that is say, well, look what uh, this country is doing to this country, right. this country. And the people said, you know, and the response is, it doesn't matter what that country. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a a nation that was was built on Torah principles that you claim are, or that I just claim might be implicit in the human character. Mm -hmm. And yet, look how the Jews in the land are foregoing those, you know, in particular. Right. But these intrinsic characters, I mean, we talk about uh, Yetzer Hatov and Yetzer Hara. Yeah, right. We know that it's not all just the good that's wired into our DNA. Yeah, yeah. And, and for those listeners who might not know what uh, Dr. Rednick was just mentioning, the Yetzer Hatov and Yetzer Hara, you know, at least according to Maimonides, and I think we touched on this last time, Maimonides was saying, you know, that each, each human being is born with a propensity for good and the, the possibility of, of pure evil. Mm -hmm. Um, I shouldn't say pure evil, mm -hmm. and and it's it, and living life is a constant tension between those two things. We're pulled to do good by some mysterious force, and also there's some I don't know hedonistic or or um, I, I don't know what the word is you know that, that pulls us in the direction of doing something totally selfish. And there are a lot of at least in my readings, there have been a lot of people who truly believe that that much more idiomatic to the human character is greed. And avarice, and the and the potential for uh, bad behavior, mm -hmm. than there is for good. 
So but this brings me back to are humans unique? We can certainly look at the behavior of animals in the wild. Sometimes troops of chimps will raid other troops. Mm. Sometimes they will mm -hmm. kill others. There are animals mm. that eat mm -hmm. the infants of uh, um, that are not that they have not sired. Um, and there's that great story about the elephants recently. I I, I think I, I read. There were these poachers that were into like hunt mm -hmm. rhinos or something like that. Okay. And as they, they killed their, their rhino and they took off, the elephants stopped them and yes. stomped them to death. Right. Not because of their own concern, but because these are evil poachers and you yeah. shouldn't be doing that. It was a very moral sort of like equivocation yeah. on the elephant's and, part. And if that doesn't cause you wonder, I, I don't know what does. So that, but these things are, um, you know, are we going to label? Are we going to say that the elephant, therefore, does have mm -hmm. some inherent sense of good? And the chimps that are raiding mm -hmm. or the lions that are eating the cubs that they didn't sire, are we going to label those as bad behavior? Mm -hmm. um, it's natural. It's it, We recoil at it. But is it bad? So are human beings then... I mean, I'm really asking this. Are, are we the only ones who put a label on good and evil? Is that is that maybe our uniqueness? Well, you should have to ask your dog. But I. <laughs> and by the way, just before I taped today, my dog did what I consider something very evil. She got into the trash and eviscerated the corn cobs that we had thought we had eaten the kernels off of. And I looked at her, and I used to get mad about it. But I looked at her, and I said, "You know, I, I joke. You're the you're you're the epitome of evil, Flora. You're, you're <laughs> the most evil creature in the world." And it's a joke because obviously she's not evil. Right. Why is it obvious? Because her intention isn't. You know, there's she's just, she's naughty. But but even that's a human construction. Right. So we we aspire to mm -hmm. a life where we do not harm others and mm -hmm. where our life benefits others. And so we construct systems mm -hmm. and we call them good and evil mm -hmm. to um, uh, to lead us down that path. And so the question I would ask is, where does that desire to um, benefit others and not harm others? Where does that come from? Is that real? Is that itself something inherent? We develop the codes in order to help promote that. Mm -hmm. But is that something inherent? I mean, we're going to get. We're way out of my area of expertise. I don't know what to say about those, but those are be scientific questions mm -hmm. that I would ask. Yeah, you know, um, I often teach kids uh, specifically about the meaning of tzedakah and charity. I don't know if we talked about this mm -hmm. one, but you know, uh, when you when you go to a church, Christians will talk about charity, mm -hmm. and Jews talk about tzedakah. And if you ask ninety nine percent of the Jewish people what the word tzedakah means, I'll tell you, it means charity, righteousness. What's that? Righteousness. Right, yes. but it, right. it means righteousness or justice. I knew that one. Yeah, very good. You're the 1% who actually knows. Charity is sort of, like, and you can tell me if my etymology is wrong on this, but charity, mm -hmm. I understand, comes from the word, from the Latin root caritas okay. or cardiac, and same, it's from the heart. Mm -hmm. And the charity comes from the heart, but Judaism doesn't trust the human heart enough to let that be the case uh, and the impetus for giving. What is the impetus for giving? Because you look at the world and you see that there is injustice and you must right that wrong, even if you don't feel like it. Mm -hmm. So on that sense, it, it kind of, if you talk about Yetzer Arantok, the Torah is, is kind of saying to the average person, lean this way because the world's a mess. It is, might not be in your inclination today or any other day to act that way, but I'm telling you, you got to do it. Right. And that's why tzedakah is not charity. Tzedakah is righteousness or doing the right thing. And as long as they, as they say in Jewish tradition, if, there are, if at any given time there are 36 righteous people alive, for, for their sake, the world remains intact, mm -hmm. isn't destroyed. Right. And good thing. And a good thing. <laughs> yeah. So, I remember uh, my, my, my son and I were driving. <laughs> we, we were riding up the road when he was about 12 years old. We, first, we had first gotten here uh, to Minneapolis, and there was a car in front of us. And it had a vanity plate on it that said Sadiq. Okay. And my son knew what the word meant. Right. You know, Sadiq is one of the righteous people, right. right? And he turned to me and he said, Dad, look at that plate. He said, do you think the person driving the car is a Sadiq? And I said, I can tell you with pretty much assurance <laughs> that he is not. Because a Sadiq wouldn't be so right. 
indulgent as to label himself as such. So, anyway. So can I take us off to a, yeah, another comment or question from our fan yeah. base? Mm -hmm. um, somebody wrote in, um, I heard astrophysicist Brian Greene speak of there being multiple dimensions all around us that go beyond the three that we're familiar with, but we just can't perceive them with the senses that we have. Hmm. And this is a, uh, first of all, yes, it may be true. Um, we, we, we can't even picture these other, it's not, not only that we can't perceive them, we can't even picture them. We have to really stretch our imaginations to even talk about these other dimensions. It's easy to write down mathematically, but not so easy to picture. And it could be that that's the way the world is, that there are dimensions, if you were to get down to small enough scales, that you would see that there are other dimensions, uh, like forward, back, up, down, left, right, but that there are other dimensions that we can't access unless we got down on those scales. And that may be what's going on. But this is a really common theme in science. We are often dealing with things that we can't perceive directly, that we can only infer because of the effects they have and that we can't even picture, that we can use our abstract mathematical language um, and uh, to describe them. But if you ask me to draw a picture or explain it to you, I really can't in, in everyday words. And um, it, very common theme in science. And then the question is, well, what do we do with that? We're trying to communicate with the public and tell them these kind of crazy ideas about the way we think the world is. And this idea of hidden things that we can't see is, is, is really a powerful concept in science. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, it's, um, you know, as a, as a person who's been reading a lot of Kabbalistic literature for, for the last 15 years or so, um, they constantly speak about the hidden nature of things. Mm -hmm. um, as a matter of fact, you know, we're, we, we throw out this word a lot, uh, this term, tikkun olam, you know, taking care of the world or repairing a world. And the idea comes from this Lurianic Kabbalistic tradition of a broken universe that's in need of repair. Um, the word olam means world. It also mm -hmm. means the same word used for universe. Mm -hmm. And it comes from the Hebrew word ne'elam, the verb, which means hidden. Ah, so the very, the very word for world and universe comes from hiddenness, which means that, I mean, here's my midrash on it, would yeah. be that, that what we perceive to be the world is not, is not necessarily, all that meets the eye is not all there is. Right. That the very nature of human endeavor is to discover what is hidden within the cosmos. And by, by, and by extension, anything that is in the universe, including the human being sitting across from us. You know, you look into that person's eyes and you say, am I going to treat them like crap? Or am I going to recognize that the divine is in them and thus that will motivate me to be more humane? I, I know. And when I, um, when I take on a, uh, you know, <clears throat> a very sort of strict scientific view of that and say, well, if, if you can't see it, it's not there. Mm -hmm. I have to step back and go, that's really not true, even for science. You know, there are, I was thinking um, this morning actually about um, uh, atoms and molecules. Mm -hmm. And the, um, if you think about water, for example, the Greeks thought that you could take water and cut it, a chunk of water, a cup of water, and you cut it in half and you just have a smaller container of water and you cut it in half again and you finally you get down to a drop and you can divide that drop and it's still water. And they thought that there was this thing called an atom of water mm -hmm. and it was the smallest unit of water that you could possibly have. And what we know is that's not true. There is no kind of smallest unit. Well, there is a molecule, H2O, two atoms of hydrogen and one of oxygen, and it is water, but it's still divisible. We can't, there are hidden things inside that water. We can divide it up into the hydrogen and oxygen atoms. And they are not water. They are hidden properties. They were there, they're real, but they're not water. And only if I do this very careful investigation can I break them up and find that water really was something else. So I sort of have to be, you know, come, come at these things about hidden dimensions or hidden aspects of humans or various things with a little bit of humility, because I know that when you look closely at things, there are hidden properties hmm. that are not obvious to us. 
What you know in in Judaism we talk about a, a midrash, right? And the midrash is a story, like you just told me. Right. I mean, it, it it could be very factual, it could be very fantastic, but at the end of it, there's supposed to be something called the nimshal, which means you come out of that with a. So what does it mean? Mm -hmm. So what's the point? So I, you know, I I, I I I listen to you just now, and I get it as far as a layman like myself can understand such scientific concepts of mm -hmm. the divisibility of atoms or whatever. Right. Where does that take you? What does that mean to you now that you know that? As a scientist, it it says, don't take things for granted. Mm. It says, um, don't think that you have an ultimate understanding of the thing that you're studying. There may be aspects of it that you have not yet seen because you haven't done the right kind of investigation. In a con So that's one message that comes mm -hmm. out of it or question that comes out of it. The, the other question is, um, what do I do in a conversation like this, where I'm talking to a person of faith who comes and tells me things that I can't really test scientifically? Mm -hmm. I have to stop and ask, um, ask myself, you know, there are things as a scientist that I don't know. And I need to acknowledge that I don't know them. Mm -hmm. And that the person I'm sitting across from may have some insights into things that are true that did not come mm. out of a scientific perspective. Mm -hmm. And I need to listen. It doesn't mean I'm abandoning my scientific view of the world, but there may be other things to discover by listening to other people. Help. Yeah, no, I appreciate I, I appreciate that. You know, um, sometimes when I when I try to teach the Lurianic Kabbalistic story of the mm. of the explosion that became the universe, I often begin, almost always begin, especially with kids, but adults too, I say, Tell me about the Big Bang. And, and kids know it. They mm -hmm. know what the Big Bang was. And they even know that it happened something like 13.7 or 8 billion years right. ago. And uh, that stuff is <laughs> kind of hard. They know, they know that stuff. And I said, so what if I, you know, and I, then I had, so what if I were to tell you that 500 years before somebody came up with the theory of the Big Bang, that this rabbi in the north of Israel came up with the theory of the Big Bang, and said that a singularity exploded and became the multiple nature of the universe, you know, mm -hmm. multiplicity or whatever you want to call it. And, and, and then I go on to talk about how what that said to him and that there was a message in that, right? That there was mm -hmm. that, that, that what that pointed to is the, is the need for human beings to look at the universe, universe as a broken entity and to work to, to find the divine in all the sparks. And then I asked the kids, so what's the difference between the Big Bang Theory scientifically stated in whatever 1917 or 820 or whatever it was, or Rabbi Luria's statement, which is very similar, and almost every kid is able to respond, well, that tells you why it happened, and science does not do that for you. It tells you what happened, what might have happened. Um, as an explanation, but it really doesn't leave you anywhere with, with, with a guiding principle behind it. Right. And um, the and science can only do so much. Really, there, there really are things. So we can, uh, there's a wonderful book that I've read a couple of times and I need to read yet again because it's been enough time by Paul Davies called The Mind of God. Hmm, yes. And he's a cosmologist, yeah. a scientist, sure. and he, um, yeah, he explores all kinds of interesting issues. And we can, we can describe, we're getting closer and closer to describing why the universe had to turn out the way it was. And that's mostly what he spends the time in the book doing is talking about what the properties of the universe are and, and why from a scientific standpoint they had to be. Mm -hmm. But he keeps asking himself, but is there a place for God in here somewhere? Mm -hmm. And, oh, it's a shame because this is a spoiler alert for people that want to read the book, I guess. Oh, I so think that's okay. That's a, and, and in the end, he really has a religious sensibility mm -hmm. because in the end, he says, we can explain it all, but not in the end, not the same kind of why, but why we're even here. Why is there a universe at all? Mm. Sure, it could exist, and mm -hmm. sure, it could have those properties, mm -hmm. but but why why mm -hmm. why is it even here? Mm -hmm. And and in the end, it's a religious answer for him that there's mm -hmm. that there there's was, purpose. There's purpose somehow. Yeah. There's a reason why we're here. Yeah. Um, I'm not there yet, but yeah. that's okay. <laughs> I, I don't know where I'm at exactly with that either, except that that when I've been thinking about this a lot recently, <laughs> I don't know why, but. Um, 
when people talk about eternity or infinite universe, somebody popped this into my head some time ago that said, well, you know, if the universe is infinite, I mean, as much as we can wrap our heads around the notion mm -hmm. of, of infinity, so that would mean, he said, that would mean that everything that could be is there. In other words, some planet out there could have a couple of people sitting on a, on, at a table just like us, except maybe I have a third eye in the middle of my forehead, right? Yeah. And when I think about that, 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 that's a moment where I, of clarity for me because I go, yeah, that could be, I suppose, in an infinite universe, everything could be. But why would it need to be? And that brings me back to the idea that Judaism teaches where uh, if, if one soul were identical to the next soul, why would that soul have to be created? And that speaks to me because every human being I've met, every human being I've met is different. You know, seven and a half billion people on the face of the earth, but every one of them is different. Um, why is that? What's the need for that? And that to me speaks of purpose. I don't know. This being Arab Shavuot, the, the night mm -hmm. of, of uh, the giving of the law holiday. I think of that old saw about the, um, the uh, maybe we'll say the astrophysicist or the scientist and the theologian climbing up either side of the mountain, mm -hmm. right, to find the truth. And what do they get to the top? They don't find the truth, but they look at each other. They say, aha. And the other one says, aha, you know? Yeah, I, I it's like, how do you go on after that? That's just, just a great story. <laughs> it, it, it is, but I think what the story says is what you just said earlier is that, is that uh, or the author of The Mind of God says, mm -hmm. you know, you get to a certain point and then it leads you to a faith statement. Or you get, you're, if you're a theologian, you get to a certain point and then you want evidence hard scientific evidence right. to help you out. And this is actually a lovely segue into what we were going to talk about next, and that is the role of awe. Mm. And because people look at, you know, hard scientific evidence and stuff, mm. and that's not what the practice of science is like. The, and in fact, it's a major issue in the way we educate people in science because historically, education and science was learning the rules, learning the facts mm -hmm. and stuff. And um, there's, there's a lot of work now, both in K-12 education and also at the university level, to try to um, uh, impart some of the other side of the scientific enterprise in there. And that is that you have to, in order to make progress in science, you have to have imagination. You have to look at things with awe and be surprised at them and, and let them inspire you to ask questions. And that's very different than sort of learning the facts. And one of the best expressions of that was something that I'd like to read that, that Einstein wrote. Mm. Um, and it, it just sort of captures this, um, uh, this idea of surprise and wonder, mm -hmm. which is so critical to us pursuing science, you know, at, not just as a profession, but again, to, to learn anything new in science, you've got, you've got to have this kind of sense of wonder. Mm -hmm. and, and he writes, um, a wonder of such nature I experienced as a child of four or five years when my father showed me a compass that this needle behaved in such a determined way, not at all fit into the nature of events, which could find a place in the unconscious world of, con of concepts. He couldn't figure out what was touching this needle to make it go in, 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 this, in this very particular direction. I can still remember, or at least I believe I can remember, that this experience made a deep and lasting impression upon me. Something deeply hidden mm. had to be behind things. Mm. And he was fascinated by whatever hidden thing mm -hmm. was moving that compass mm -hmm. around. And as scientists, we have to look at the, at the world and marvel at it mm -hmm. and then say, well, what's behind that? What's hidden? And how, how are we going to sort of make progress on it? But the idea of a dry scientific approach from facts is not what motivates us mm. and, and not the way we approach our profession. Yeah, no, that's, that's beautiful. I, you know, it, it leads me to think about some, some things that Rabbi Heschel said that we talked about, I think, a little bit in our last uh, get-together. Um, you know, he has this whole thing about radical amazement, mm -hmm. you know, is that what you really need to do is get up every morning and look at the world um, in a way that 
takes nothing for granted. You know, the first the first prayer, he doesn't say this, but the first prayer that a Jew is supposed to say in the morning is literally in the bathroom when you're doing your thing. You say, thank God the plumbing is still working. Right. You're not talking about the house plumbing. You're talking about your plumbing, right? You're yeah. not taking it for granted. Um, he, he, like, he, he associates being spiritual with being amazed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he goes on to say that, that he thinks we're living in a time, and he's, this is some years ago, but uh, where we've lost the power of celebration. Um, instead of celebrating, we, we, we seek to be amused or entertained. And that's very different because celebration is an active state of involvement with that, with, you right. know, which is around it. So being in awe or being is not only just looking back and saying, wow, but it's actually um, uh, confronting or giving attention. And, um, and, and this hits me these days, and I'd be interested in know what you think about this. This hits me especially um, these days because, you know, one of the things Heschel says is that, that humankind will not perish for want of information, but for want of appreciation. Mm-hmm. And I think about that because, you know, look what we're doing to the world. It's not from lack of information that, that the world is going down the tubes environmentally. It's because we don't sit back and go, look what we have. Look at the beauty of our surroundings. Let's use some of this big uh, brain of ours um, and, 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 uh, and attach it to an appreciation we're supposed to have. And then we can start being human with the world. I think that's one of our frustrations as people and citizens of everything else. There are things which really are obvious, mm-hmm. the information that we have, and yet we don't act on them. So where is this the bridge in Tennessee, I think, it was that um, between Tennessee and Arkansas, from remembering that developed a crack and they had to stop the river traffic. And it's like, mm-hmm. we knew there were cracks there. We knew that we're not um, investing in our infrastructure the way we should, mm-hmm. among many other things that we're not doing. It's not for lack of information that we don't do. And I think that extends our personal lives as well as our political lives as well. It's definitely not an information, many times it's not an information limit. And as a scientist, so I mean, mm-hmm. I, I come back to the, to the science side of things, um, we are flooded with data. Mm-hmm. You, you can look at the sky and see thousands and thousands of stars and look through a telescope and see tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands. And now with our new telescopes, we're cataloging millions of things. So with millions of things, I could sit down and read off their properties and spend my entire life just reading through, be like reading through a phone book. Mm -hmm. And here's a star here and here's how hot it is and here's temperature. That's information, but it's not understanding or appreciation. Mm. So we are always in the struggle to take the information mm-hmm. that we have and not appreciate it in a moral sense, but appreciate it in a bigger picture sense. Mm-hmm. What is the, What are the patterns behind that? What, are the, mm-hmm. what, what do we need to understand from all this information that we're presented with? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, you know, one of the things I think that faith studies and science have very in common with that is, is that... Uh, I'm such not a scientist that I'm just totally speaking through my proverbial toughness when I say this. But my understanding of science, whenever I read about scientific experimentation, mm-hmm. I, I, I marvel at, at their brilliance. But I also marvel at the way scientists are able to stick to it for as long as that. You know, you read about people who have been studying some sort of amoeba for the last 20 years, you mm-hmm. know, and I go, really? You know, how, how, how does one pay that much attention to one thing? But, but to, to me, that... That, that's the way, it, it, for many aspects of scientific discovery, it has to happen. And it always reminds me of, the, of one of the most famous biblical scenes of Moses at the burning bush, right? Because you could always ask the question about, about, about why he's the one who watches the burning bush mm-hmm. and approaches it thinking something's going on. And the Midrash says that the reason he does that is because he stands there long enough. He said a number of other people might have walked past. Oh, look, a bush on fire. Big deal. But Moses stops and says, you know, he just he pauses and he says that's still not burning up. It's still not burning up. It's still not burning up. And then God speaks through the bush and says the famous name that he gives Moses to take back the Israelites was Ehiyeh Asher Ehiyeh. 
I will always be as I am, or I am what I am, you know, mm-hmm. which is just a statement of, of I am a constant. One of, one of my most spiritual experiences, long before I even thought of becoming a rabbi, was I was taking an art history class, art appreciation class, and our assignment was to go and sit in front of a painting for two hours, <laughs> oh, one painting yeah. for two hours, and then to write. And I remember three things about, about that experience. Mm-hmm. I went and I, 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 it was Blue Mountain by Kandinsky. I went and saw the original, it happened to right. be in town, right? And I just, I got it. I remember that I got involved with the painting, that I sort of lost track of where I was and who I was. It was all in the painting. And then I wrote this amazing essay and then I gave it to the instructor and her, and I got an A on it. And she, but she put it at the bottom and said, this is brilliant. She said, did you get it from somewhere? <laughs> So she questioned the validity yeah. of my experience. Oh, right. it, it hurt. It hurt, yeah. especially because I was not a great student in school. Yeah. And, and it I, was a compliment in a way. It was, <laughs> but she was sort of like, this is before the internet, and she right. could like just put the whole thing in there and find out if I had cribbed it from some other right. source. But but what it what it left me with, aside from her, you know, <laughs> doubtful nature about it, is it 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 showed me that that sometimes if you just have the patience, you know, uh, to appreciate something and take the time that is necessary to do it, like meditation, you know, mm-hmm. that, that new hidden things, to go back to our, uh, right. are become available. Yeah, it's interesting because I would separate out the two things that you were talking about. One is the persistence to work on a project for 20 years, some mm-hmm. amoeba and stuff. Mm-hmm. And one of the best examples of that was uh, Thomas Edison, who we credit with the light bulb. Well. Finding that tungsten filament Hmm. in the light bulb that would last for sufficient time and be bright Hmm. enough, I think he went through like a thousand different materials. Mm -hmm. And he he just, it was, it was all hard work. He just kept at it and kept at it. The failures didn't uh, throw him off. He just kept going. And that kind of bullheadedness, Mm -hmm. I think, is um, necessary in any profession. Um, and Alexander Bell too, Graham yeah. Bell. Uh, I just read about the book that just came out about him, how how intent he was about listening to things, and mm-hmm. I, and and it reveals that his wife and his daughter were deaf. Yes, right. Which which speaks volumes, I think. You know, right. it, 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 as to as to why he was so captivated with the the notion of audible. Mm-hmm. And this single-minded focus on solving a problem definitely is true of scientists. Mm-hmm. We we never let go. Of of an idea that we're after, and we're going to solve, and we're going to try something new, and try something new. So there's that perseverance side of things, but I think that the Moses story you were talking about is different Mm -hmm. because there it's it's being quiet for long enough, and and it's the being quiet and and not forcing answers on things, but less leaving yourself open, and that is really the flip side of science. You can't solve all problems just by beating at them and beating at them. Some of them are amenable to that, and you can solve things uh, by doing that. You can solve technical problems and stuff. But the inspirational side of things comes from being quiet. And whether it's the burning bush or whether it's looking at a picture of the sky. Or meditation. Or meditation and letting the ideas flow in Mm -hmm. and just go, oh, my gosh, Mm -hmm. I see it now. I Mm -hmm. never saw it or thought about it before, um, very critical. And and the interesting thing is, so now that I'm retired and not teaching anymore, it would be lovely to ask a question in a class hmm. of some puzzle and then just say, I don't want an answer now. I want you to sit quietly for three minutes hmm. and don't say a word to hmm. your neighbor or anybody else and just think. And then at the end of three minutes, we're going to talk about what ideas came into your head. This, too too late. I think it would be great, though. <laughs> it would be. I mean, it wasn't this what Buddha was teaching yeah. thousands of years ago? Sure. You know, just like, would it sit or be still, mm-hmm. you know, for, for long enough? Right. And, and, it, and it'll come to you? Right. So while we're there, um, we don't have a long enough silent prayer in services. Correct. Correct. <laughs> I, I think about that every time we break for the sound of prayer and, and then the music starts coming in and within the, we talked about it a few years back. Mm-hmm. We said we should at least give them a minute. Right. You know? My breathing doesn't even slow down that fast. To me, this is a beautiful topic. And, yeah. you know, one of the reasons it's personal for me is because I have, I have digestive issues mm-hmm. 
you're wondering how that plays into this. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm sure you'll connect well, somehow. <laughs> and, and I've never been able to meditate well, but, but the meditators will tell you if you just keep working on it, you can get to that quiet place. And recently I was, I was actually listening to a meditation which talked about loosening up the stomach and thinking about the pain as a, a ball of jelly and, and mm. it, you know, disperse it. And lo and behold, it started working for me. And I mean, I'm serious when I say that. I mean, I, like I was tied up like a knot yeah. and then giving time to do that and, and the attention to something worked. And, and, and for me, it took me to a hidden place. It took me to a place that has been unavailable to me. Mm -hmm. And the only thing I can ascribe it to is either that the person who was describing was very in tune with how one should think of one's bodily issues, right. or that or that meditation and silence and, and stillness is an integral part of human behavior that we're missing, or that I, as Sim Glazer, am right. woefully yeah. missing. So this idea of sort of sitting quietly, mm -hmm. um, there are times when, or there are aspects of the of the work that I do in astrophysics that you wish you could sit quietly for long enough, mm. and and the reason is that it takes a long time for things to evolve on cosmic scales. In fact, we have this wonderful prayer in the liturgy about there are stars that are so mm -hmm. far away mm -hmm. that they're I, they're not in existence anymore, and their light but is their still, light still yeah. guides our path. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's true that things change typically on millions and billions of years and we can't sit long enough to do mm -hmm. it so if we could see if if we could and so typically we develop computer simulations and things to mm -hmm. try to take us through those very long time scales and just watch and things that you couldn't see before if you watch that movie if you could sit still long enough mm -hmm. and watch the movie again you would see mm -hmm. new patterns but the other thing is that this idea about patience, um, patience is rewarded. Their perseverance is rewarded, but patience is rewarded as well. So um, I remember uh, being out at a camp where I was a supervisor for a group of counselors mm -hmm. and all of the um, campers were in the process of getting ready for bed and stuff and everything was getting dark and I was just out in the middle of the field. and the sky lit up all of a sudden. A, a mm. giant meteor, which we call Bolai, mm. came in and mm -hmm. lit the sky up green. And you, you just have to be ready for mm. those things to happen. You have to be quiet, you have to mm. be present, mm. and, and there are all kinds of wonderful things that are, that are going on. I also remember a, a camp uh, a moment year, years and years ago mm. where, where we sort of had a, um, at the time, a very avant-garde art instructor who had, who had come up to the camp. Mm. And he was in charge of the evening program that night. And the, and, and the evening program, we all sat on, on the floor of this, uh, this auditorium. And he, everyone was handed a strawberry. Um, and I guess a little plastic knife. And the whole program, and it lasted over an hour, was to look at that strawberry. <laughs> Okay. And then to cut it in half and notice how the little seeds, you know, had mm -hmm. lines that go all the way in. And then, you know, it, it, and the color of it and the color of the different aspects of the color and then the taste, you know, then you eat it and, and the taste. Bud. And here I am, you know, 55 years later, I still remember the moment. Right. And I still, when I pick up a strawberry, I'll look at it and I'll go, that is one cool piece of fruit. Right. You know, and if, but so I wouldn't have been able to do that if that guy hadn't said, you're going to, we're going to take an right. hour. So here's a dilemma that comes up then. Suppose that I were to explain to you why those colors were the way they were and why those seeds were in a line and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Would that take away any of the wonder that you had in experiencing the strawberry? Yeah. And that happens in our classes. Yes. There are people who say, you've taken away the mystery yes. for me. I love the mystery. I'm so and, glad you mentioned that because mm -hmm. I, I really did want to mention that. The, you know, the, 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 the supreme example of that in my rabbinic uh, education was when we were taking our first Bible class and the guy who was t teaching it was not the usual teacher. He was subbing for a, a, a professor who was on sabbatical. And the new the professor who was coming in was very um, mechanical and documentary mm -hmm. hypothesis oriented right. with his approach. And that's what he did the whole semester. 
And I had there to my right, sitting to my right, I still see her as one of my one of my colleagues, one of my classmates. And she was a very spiritual person and loved the stories of the Bible and loved the feelings that it gave her. And I could see her just like staring at him the whole time. And at the end, the last day of the class, he said, well, that's our class. He said, I've told you a lot of what I know about how the, the authorship of the Bible and how it was put together and the literary mishaps and all that. And any reactions? And my classmate broke down and sobs. And he was stunned. He didn't understand why. And she, she said, you've ruined it for me. You've ruined the Torah. You've ruined the Bible for me. You destroyed it. And she meant it. And she wasn't an evil person. She wasn't a nasty person. <laughs> she was really, it, it had wrecked it because it had been over-systematized. It had been over-analyzed. Mm -hmm. It had been, you know, it's like taking love and putting it on an, on an autopsy table and trying to dissect love and saying, here's what love is. But she couldn't she have had both? Not the way this professor was putting it out there. I remember, I know who it was, I remember his name, I remember that he, and he was a rabbi too, mm -hmm. but he had issues. He had issues. I could, I knew he had issues with, with, with spirituality, and I think this was one of the reasons, because he was just a practical sort of, if you'll excuse the expression, sort of scientifically oriented, mm -hmm. analytically oriented person. Yeah, we don't was, usually use those in pejorative ways, but... Well, I don't, it's not, it's not pejorative, only, only in so far yeah. as if you take a, a topic like scripture mm -hmm. and you treat it that way you're gonna somebody's gonna get upset okay so i'm gonna ask you then should there be limits right on on what we should do are there questions that we should not investigate are are there questions hmm. that we should not ask what what hmm. what are you going to say when i tell you i know why this is true mm -hmm. i know i can tell you now from an evolutionary standpoint why there is yitzhar hurrah and mm -hmm. yitzhar tov Mm -hmm. It's like, is, is that going to diminish it for you? You know, um, I'll, I'll give just a simple answer to that. When I read the Harari books, the mm -hmm. Noah Yuval Harari. Um, We're talking about Sapiens, Sapiens and Homo Deus. In right. particular, he has another one too. But um, those two, you know, I read that. And as I'm reading, I thought, this guy is really pulling apart the universe and into its component parts. And he wants to explain scientific rationalizations for everything. And when I finished it, I was both incensed, but I was really, um, uh, what's the word, mobilized, or, or, or um, I was jazzed up. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when I read it, I would think, yeah, you do think that. I said, but you're wrong. You're wrong, you know? <laughs> and there was something inside of me that was arguing with his very practical uh, consideration of things. So the answer to my answer to your question would be, no, we shouldn't stop analyzing. There shouldn't be limits. Keep doing it, but always have one eye on the people who have faith in certain aspects mm -hmm. that are maybe even undiagnosable or unanalyzable. Right. I don't think it's a problem. I think it's good when scientists and theologians sit down together. In fact, it may be the only solution for the planet's problems, right? Because if we look at what's being done environmentally to this world and we look at it only through a scientific standpoint, I'm not sure that's going to suffice. No, in fact, we know it's not. And and we know, for example, with all the misinformation that we're experiencing now in, in lots of different ways, we know that better education is not the answer. We know that giving people more facts mm -hmm. is not the answer. We need to understand something about them as human beings mm -hmm. and where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of that science can help with that, but some of that cultural and religious things need to come into play and we need to understand hmm. uh, where, you know, where people are. The, um, That's sort of the answer to your question, in a way, right? Is that don't limit the study of it, but don't, don't put all your marbles in that basket. Right. So that's why I would say to this woman who was sobbing at the mm -hmm. end of class, mm -hmm. relax a little bit. Mm -hmm. This is one guy. This one guy, came, yeah. Who came in and, and did this. I think that's probably what I said to her. It's <laughs> and, just and, this guy. But it's interesting because I come into this conflict all the time when go to services and reading liturgy and we say things like, who causes the sun to rise in the morning and the moon at night. First of all, it's factually incorrect because the, the moon is up during the day as well, mm -hmm. not just at night. Mm -hmm. And we know why the sun rises mm -hmm. and sets. And, and then there are other things like, um, who can count the stars? Well, I, I can. I, I can and I have. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like, 
But so I have to just sort of relax. Yeah. Because it's the language means other things. Mm -hmm. And we have to simultaneously be people mm -hmm. and be these analytic creatures yeah. that are trying to understand yeah. in this other way. You know, my, my son it, it teaches in, on, a, in, on a college level, he teaches poetry. Mm -hmm. But he himself is not a poet, and I'm not even sure he is all that entranced by poetry, but he teaches the, the iambic pentameter, the mm -hmm. rhythms of poetry. And that's what he has devoted, that's what his thesis was. He wrote a book that was just published on the right. subject. And I look at that and I think, well, here's an interesting example of somebody who wants to take apart the, the very basic structures of, of poetry. And that's going to be just fascinating to some people, but other people are going to maybe look at that and say, yeah, but the poem, what about the, what about the, the beauty of the poem? Just as it hits mm -hmm. you, you know, and uh, his, his, his understanding of the beauty of the poem encapsulates in, in in, in also the structure. Right. And, and I think that when, when I learn how things work, I mean, I mm -hmm. understand how a comet works, mm -hmm. but it doesn't take away from me the experience of seeing a comet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you uh, put in a plug for total solar eclipses, if you ever get a chance to see a total solar eclipse, do it. I mean, mm -hmm. we, we have um, been lucky enough to be able to, as a family, see two of them mm -hmm. now. And... Um, I understand exactly what's going on. Mm. I understand what we're seeing when you see the hidden sun and it mm. gets dark mm. and you can see the outer atmosphere of the sun and all mm. these jewel-like prominences coming out. It looks like three-dimensional almost, doesn't it? I mean, it that, that was my experience when I saw it. It's otherworldly. I yeah. mean, you look at it and I can still feel, just even talking about it now, the hair going up in the mm. back of my neck and stuff. It's chilling to see it. Yeah. Even though I understand it, I sure. don't have to impose that understand, get let that understanding get in the way hmm. of the wonder and awe, and I love it. Um, and that's and again to get to get back to one of the, one of the points that I was trying to make. It's important for us as human beings to do that, to not let the facts get in the way of the appreciation, hmm. but also from a scientific standpoint, it's important to be quiet and step back because we know that um, scientific creativity is not going to come from that perseverance side of things. It's going to come from appreciation. the appreciation mm -hmm. and stepping back and being mm -hmm. quiet. That's okay. where the new ideas are going to come from. I think, I think that should be, that, that, I think you should get the last word on that. Okay. I think that's I'm, perfect. I'm good. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. So we'll, um, we, uh, um, we thank you all for listening and we are, um, uh, maybe, you know, depending on how this one goes over, <laughs> going to come back and maybe talk about truth at some point, right? Oh, man. If uh, there is such a thing as truth, we'll be able to figure it out. <laughs> right. Rudnick and Glazer. All right. Thank you, Larry, for, uh, thank you. for my, my pleasure. It's, it's always a joy. As always, thank you for listening. And if you would like to have Rabbi Glazer and Dr. Rudnick back for a third episode, please submit any questions or comments that they can address to tmoss at templeisrael.com and I will forward it on to them. Thanks again for listening. Have a great one.